the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We all, since 9-11, have become alarmingly aware of uh, what is going on in the Muslim world, particularly on the fundamentalist end of things. Um, And as much as we're concerned about the threat to America's safety and security, the American way of life, imagine what people living underneath the oppressiveness of Islam is like in the Middle East. Most difficultly, we have seen many of these stories of women who have been charged under Sharia law courts and have received multiple lashings, uh, situations in countries in the Middle East where women are denied what we consider to be pedestrian of the basic human rights, the opportunity to uh, uh, drive a car, be involved in the elective process, even in some cases receive a basic education. The need, of course, ultimately is to share the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ with these women. And joining me right now is a lady who's done just that, working with her husband as a missionary in the Middle East for almost a decade. Um, They, in fact, to this day, remain actively involved in reaching the unreached people in the Middle East and around the world, bringing the gospel to Muslim women. And Audra Shelby with us on the program tonight. Audra, thanks so much for taking time to join us. Audra, uh, Craig, I'm delighted to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. You have written a book detailing your experiences behind the veils of Yemen. And, of course, we've heard some uh, news in recent months here with Yemen once again back in the news. Uh, We hear at at, at fleeting chances the opportunity for stories about life for people living behind the Islamic curtain, so to speak, particularly difficult so for women. That's right, and I've been blessed with being able to tell my story and getting behind the veils and visiting and getting into the lives, sharing the lives of these women. Tell us a bit about your experiences. Give us a bit of a a perspective, if you would. When we hear stories about, well, in certain countries, women are not allowed to vote, other places they can't drive, Uh, women are not allowed to be seen in the company of other men unless it's an immediate relative, Uh, can't go to school. We think of the stories they came out of Afghanistan and the tail end of the regime of the Taliban. I mean, are the levels of extremism, of the lack of rights that women have behind the Islamic curtain, behind the veil, that severe? Uh, it depends on the country and, and the area of the country. In Yemen, women did have the right to vote, and they were allowed to drive, but it all depended on permission of their husbands and support of their husbands. They were always subject to their husbands. Um, I had friends that were not allowed to go to the market or go out in, in the afternoons. They were required to stay indoors unless their husband gave them permission to leave. So you would, I did not know of a woman that was publicly uh, punished like you hear in Afghanistan or in some of the other countries, but I knew women that were beaten by their husbands and who could not 
uh, go out and visit other women because their husbands were too afraid they would run into a man. Uh, and then this justified based on Islamic teaching and Sharia law, but in reality, what? Just a, a thin excuse for, for uh, male chauvinism uh, on, on steroids? Possibly. I think we have to understand, too, that women... For a woman to go into paradise, a lot of it is based on how well she obeys her husband and how well she raises good Muslim sons. So it's more than just what her husband requires. It's what she feels like she must do in order to achieve paradise. So there's a sense of religious duty behind a lot of this. Yes, there is. And for the average Islamic woman, uh, let's talk your, your directly to your experience in, in Yemen. Give us a thumbnail sketch. What's, what's life like for a woman? Well, let me take you to a bride, okay, who's, who's very excited about the three days of her wedding. She's going to be feted and celebrated by the other women. Ceremony will take place between her husband and her father. She does not attend the actual ceremony at the mosque. She is for three days... Her hair is done, and she's so excited, and girls look forward to the day that they're going to leave their father's dominion and have a home, and they dream of the love that they're going to get from their husbands. They're full of romantic dreams. Now let's flash forward a year later and see the same girl and who has no dreams in her eyes, and I tell about this in Behind the Veils of Yemen, meeting a girl who was just... You could see she'd become so disillusioned and so unhappy a year later, realizing she had only left her father's dominion for her husband's dominion. Well, talk about a stark contrast against the the Western ideal, where women are involved in planning every detail of the wedding and the ceremony and uh, the experience, uh, you know, that everyone will enjoy there at the wedding and, of course, the following reception. And and you're telling me in some Islamic countries, the women are not even invited to their own wedding. (laughs) Well, it's, it's a very different scenario. The women have these big parties where they get together for about three days. There's three days generally, um, and each day the, the bride wears a different color. And then the third day, the white day, she wears a white wedding gown just like you would find here, and she has this big party, and the women are all treating her like a princess. She sits on a special chair like a throne. And then after the actual wedding ceremony takes place between her husband and or her future groom and her father, then the, because the men are all partying separately, Her husband and the men come in this great convoy of honking horns, and they come to pick up the bride and take her to her new home, to her husband's home, um, a lot of times with his family. And that's how her married life begins. And so it begins with uh, great excitement and anticipation, and and sadly sounds like after a while it ends up being uh, as an oppressive atmosphere at home with her new husband as maybe she had to deal with at home with her parents. Yes, yes, and a lot of times I think that's the way it worked works out in what I've seen among the women. Let's pause for a moment. We'll come back to our conversation. Audra Shelby with us today. She's author of Behind the Veils of Yemen, How an American Woman Risked Her Life, Family, and Faith to Bring Jesus to Muslim Women. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
We're talking with Andra Shelby, which, by the way, is not her real name. We're just kind of helping to protect her anonymity because uh, she has for over a decade been involved in sharing the good news of the gospel with Muslim women. She has a new book out called Behind the Veils of Yemen, How an American Woman Risked Her Life, Family, and Faith to Bring Jesus to Muslim Women. Andra, when we think of the level of oppression within Islamic society, particularly in the Middle East, and Sharia law and so on and so forth, and a lot of this both religious and cultural. Uh, clearly, uh, life is pretty mundane and pretty oppressive for women. I would suspect that into that atmosphere, interjecting the good news of Jesus Christ must have been, I would imagine, regarded as a, a tremendous hope for these women. Wouldn't it be? Well, you would think that. Now, even as poor and as, as needy as the women were, they looked on me as an infidel and as inferior to them. And so even at the beginning, they have been told, a lot of them are illiterate, 98% of Yemeni women out in villages are illiterate, don't know how to read or write or add or subtract. So all they know about their religion is what they have been told, and all they know about Christianity is what they've been told, or what they've seen in American films. So their concept of American women are that we are immoral, corrupt women who sleep around and don't love our children. So when I would see them, and they would meet me, or meet a Christian face-to-face for the first time, they were totally stunned that I wasn't who I was supposed to be, that I was very different from what they had been told. So it wasn't this hunger to know. It was at first a disdainful attitude, and then to realize, wait, you're not the person that, that you're supposed to be, and then wanting to know what the difference was, why I wasn't that person, and then seeing a strength in me. So many of my friends, and I tell about instances in Behind the Veils of Yemen where they would say, Antikawiya. You're, you're strong, wanting to know why. Why wasn't I afraid to ride in a taxi with, where there was a man? Why wasn't I fr- afraid of being sick and, and dying? Um, and that opened avenues to share with them uh, why I wasn't afraid, because I walked with Jesus. So you really had to initially move from dispelling a lot of the misconceptions Correct. that no doubt are very much played up in Islamic media and uh, certainly by the imams and mosque and the men and so on and so forth to paint this very negative, vile picture of what Western women are all about. So you overcome that, that misconception and then, in that process, I mean, I would imagine, as we regard and see the teachings of the the uh, the God, small g, of Allah, within the Quran and the Hadith, to be this ruthless, bloodthirsty, fearful, uh, vengeful deity, and then contrast that against the God of the Bible, who sacrifices his very own son, for forgiveness and reconciliation to the creation. I mean, you look at those two major differences between Allah of the Quran and the God of the Bible, and I would imagine that once they begin to see and and grasp some level of the stark contrast between the two, that must be eye-opening for them. It is. It's a slow process because they have to see it in me first because they are so... um, They're so prepared. They're so keyed to the Bible being corrupt, that they don't want to hear anything from my book. It's corrupted. They don't believe 
and my my Jesus of the New Testament because they have been told that all of it is lies. So at first, actually, they don't even want to hear it. And it's seeing something different in me and seeing the love and actually trying to almost sponge it out of me, squeeze it from me to fill their lives. That's what really helps them see something's missing. There's something I have that they don't. Um, and seeing the limits of their religion when they're in, in total despair um, and wanting what I have in mind, that has been more opening in their lives than just trying to to share um, the truth of Scripture. I'm not saying not sharing the truth of Scripture, but I'm saying using it in everyday life, using it constant as my reasons for why. Uh, why I believe, why I'm strong, why I'm not afraid, why I love, why my husband loves me and is my friend, not my owner. In the end, give me kind of your um, your evaluation of your experience there in Yemen for almost a decade. Well, it was it was a wonderful time. It was probably the most challenging time of my life. It was sweet in its dependence on the Lord and, and seeing Him and knowing Him in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise. It was, uh, I, I felt constantly drained just by the need of the women. I, I felt stretched to meet the needs, the emotional needs, the spiritual needs, the mental needs, even physical needs. Um, but it was such a, a rewarding time to know what it means to realize my strength is limited, but Christ is not, that he is everything he says he is and is everything that I need and more than enough to meet any need. And and it it was a wonderful time of learning and growing in me, which I think in Behind the Veils of Yemen, I think I grew as much as the women that I met grew in in my ministering to them. In that sense, did it also, in your experience, draw you closer to the Lord, um, particularly as you're seeing the, the major contrast, not just between uh, Western society and Middle Eastern society, but two, the major differences between the, the teachings of what is the, the lie of Islam and the truth of the gospel? Absolutely. I mean, we, we never lived in Yemen that there wasn't a travel warning against being there. And you had, I had to come face to face with who God is and walk totally by faith and totally dependent on Him for survival, for safety, for security. And it was, it was a sweet dependence in seeing Him and knowing that you are totally reliant on Him. I mean, His grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in weakness. And it was a, it was a wonderful blessing to be able to experience that without the comforts that sometimes distract us from knowing Him. During that time, um, I would assume, Audra, that you had an opportunity to lead some of these women to Christ, even if it was done kind of uh, uh, quietly and surreptitiously? Yes, yes, I was. I was able to share Scripture. I was able to share my faith. I was able to share the story of Jesus uh, with women many times, just in answering to their question. Um, and it was, it's, it's a wonderful thing to see women that have so much need to be loved and to be valued and have so many dreams of their own that will never be fulfilled by their religion to see and to have hope in Jesus Christ. 
And in doing so, uh, how startling the change, the contrast in their life? Well, you have to remember that it is a startling change internally and and spiritually. But then they face um, reality. It's against the law for a Yemeni person, man or woman, to convert out of Islam. It is punishable by death, usually instigated by a family member. And we knew several people that were turned over to authorities by their own family, by their father, by their brother, by their husband, or by a wife. And then they go on severe persecution and torture in an effort to make them recant the Christian faith. So uh, women in Yemen especially are very, and men, it's a very social culture. Everything they do is communal. And to be cut off and shut off from their people, from their families, from their home is devastating. It's a real challenge to, uh, for them as they adapt and grow in their Christian faith to realize they've lost everything to follow Jesus. Clearly a, 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 a very sad and oppressive uh culture and and religion, and yet one that, in spite of all of that, uh, can receive great freedom that comes through the saving knowledge and relationship with Jesus Christ. Audra, we appreciate your time. Folks can get more information about this new book, Behind the Veils of Yemen by Audra Grace Shelby, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Those still exist, don't they, Richard? One or two, I think, yeah. (laughs) One. (laughs) And, of course, through Amazon.com. The book published by Chosen, again, Behind the Veils of Yemen. Our special guest today, Audra Grace Shelby. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The Apostle Paul reminds us that we are to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within. Certainly makes sense from a perspective of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, after all, um, if we're in this love relationship with the Lord and he has redeemed us, as we share that good news with others, don't don't we want to be articulate about um, what he's done in our life? and how we can change somebody else's life, too. While certainly that's the desire, I think a lot of people, when it comes to the matter of of sharing their faith or evangelism, get nervous. They get nervous because oftentimes we are afraid that somebody is going to ask us a question that we can't give an answer for. Oftentimes this goes to the heart of the question as to whether or not we are ready to give that answer for the hope that lies within. A brand new book out that uh, helps give some insight to some of the bigger questions and uh, appropriate answers to same. Written by Mark Middleberg, the book is called The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. And Mark, great to have you on the show tonight. Great to be with you. I have to wonder, we look at some of these questions here, you know, what makes you sure that God exists? How can we trust the Bible? Uh, Wasn't Jesus just a good uh, man and teacher? Uh, Are are very common questions, to be sure. And one would think questions that at the base every Christian would feel comfortable in answering. But obviously, a book like yours suggests that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, you know, in a perfect world, I guess we should. But the, the real truth is a lot of us, uh, grew up with the Christian faith. Our parents taught us as we were young, which is great, but when you're raised kind of on VBS and Sunday school and this is, you know, being taught that this is true your whole life, and, and if you're mostly around Christians, then later when someone really looks you in the eye and says, yeah, but how do you know? And, you know, you believe the Bible, it's full of contradictions, it's based on myths, it's, you know, how can you accept that? Well, a lot of us quite naturally feel intimidated by that because we just haven't prepared ourselves for that. 
So that's really the spirit of this book is to say, these are the questions we're afraid of. This is based on a national survey we did about a year and a half ago that summer. We asked a thousand Christians, you know, what are the issues that you hope will not come up when you're in a conversation with a non-Christian? And these are the top ten questions that came up. So let's get ready, because if we feel ready, then we're much more willing to get into those conversations and much more likely to be used by God. Now, for many years, you served as evangelism director of Willow Creek Community Church there in Chicago. Um, as you spoke with folks that were coming through your program, uh, did there seem to be a commonality um, over intimidation by some of these questions? And I'm wondering how much of that might have gone to, as you suggest, maybe a sense of Christian isolationism where we really don't know the answer to these questions because we've never been asked them. Uh, and then, too, maybe to a level of just simple biblical illiteracy where a lot of folks are just not that familiar with Scripture enough to feel comfortable in 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 speaking to some of these questions yeah i i think that's very true i think uh again i think sometimes as churches we're a lot better at teaching especially young people teaching them what to believe but not why it's true and so a lot of young people grow up learning the creeds learning bible verses uh, being able to kind of parrot back the right answers but again I think in the training, and I'm a real advocate even in Sunday school classes, where we say, okay, let's let's role play here a little. I used to do this when I was a high school Sunday school teacher. I'd say, for the next half hour, I'm going to be a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, or I'm going to be a strong, you know, kind of atheistic evolutionist, and I'm going to challenge your ideas. And And at first it freaked the kids out. But then they they really took to it because they, they realized, well, wait a minute, we have answers to these things. And so I think we just need to really force ourselves to think more and get more ready because truth is on our side. We we don't have to be afraid of these things, but we do, as, as the verse you quoted, First uh, Peter 3.15, we do need to get prepared. There's a couple of issues here at hand, too, I think. I remember a number of years ago, Norman Geisler was on the program, and we spent some time talking about what, at the time, was an increase in, in how should I phrase this, a, a debate, really, over whether or not it was necessary as a Christian to believe in a, a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, or whether or not that could have been simply a figurative events. And it was amazing to me the number of people that called into our program that night that felt as if, you know, whether or not it was a literal resurrection or a figurative one really didn't matter if at the core, you know, you kind of got the message. And and it, it was a, a, a very big eye-opener for me in understanding that there oftentimes is a gulf of ignorance uh, between what we believe and even going down to the core of why we believe it. Do you think that's true? I think it's very true. And I've been in Bible studies with all church people, evangelicals, who didn't believe in the Trinity or who thought they believed in it but would articulate it in a, in a way that was actually cultic. And so, again, I, my my mission is not to shame all these people. My mission is to say we just need to do a little more preparation 
uh, let's be honest, we need to do a lot more preparation. And this, Mark, I, I should hasten to add, is not just simply for the sake of more effective outreach and evangelism, but ultimately for deepening of our own walk with Jesus Christ. I mean, it, it would seem to me um, it would be important for every believer to know why they are sure that God exists. Absolutely. I, I think all of these questions first speak to our own confidence and clarity as Christians, especially, again, young people who are going to go away, you know, go away to the university or college and have their faith challenged. And so we've got to equip them in particular, but really all of us. And then the second half is then we're going to be much more able to boldly and confidently and clearly articulate the message and explain to our non-Christian friends how they can know that it's true as well. So very much a double-edged sword cutting both ways, both in terms of being able to deepen our own faith walk and understanding and relationship with Jesus Christ, and then secondarily, once having been equipped with that information, being more effective toward giving that, uh, well, as we said earlier, that answer for the hope that lies within. Our conversation today with Mark Middleberg, a look at the questions Christians hope no one will ask. We'll come to some of those questions as our conversation continues right here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Mark Middleberg, my guest tonight. He is a former evangelism director of Willow Creek Community Church. His new book, The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. As you engaged in this survey, Mark, and I think all of these questions that you outline and detailed answers inside the pages of your new book are all vital ones. Which one would you say, though, that tended to come up the most? Well... And by the way, I need to apologize. I'm just getting over laryngitis. Not, not a problem. I'm operating with half of my voice uh, cut off here. But uh, the, the very first question we addressed in the book was one of the top two on the survey, and that is, how do you know God exists? You can't see him, feel him, hear him. You know, he's not a physical being, and yet you're kind of staking your life and eternity on belief in him. Why do you do that? And, you know, I think as Christians, again, a lot of us grew up, knowing God, believing in God, experiencing God, worshiping God. It's just a normal part of what we believe and know to be true. And yet, when someone says it like that, it's very intimidating. And like, well, I don't know how to prove it to someone else. And so I address that one very first. That's chapter one in the book, which, by the way, I can give a website later where people can read that first chapter for free. Why don't you do that right now, Mark? Okay, it's it's thequestionswithanswers.com. Thequestionswithanswers.com. Right, and we've got uh, Lee Strobel did the foreword, that's there, and then the introduction, and then this first chapter, which is, you know, how do you know God exists? You can't see, feel, hear, or touch him. Let's, let's address that question. How do we know that God exists if you can't reach out and physically touch him? And you're talking with someone who says, look, you know, God gets the blame for a lot of stuff. I just don't know that there's any evidence that God actually exists. Yeah. Well, it's a great question. And the first thing I say is don't ignore or discount your experience. Um, As a Christian, I grew up being taught this uh, as I grew up. But God is very real to me. And uh, I think anyone who's really walking with Jesus is able to talk about you know, ways he is real to them, ways he has led them, protected them, redirected them. Even even when he convicts us of 
being in the wrong or of sin. That is God's activity in our lives. So first thing I say is talk about that openly and boldly because it's real. But if you just stop there, the average non-Christian is going to go, okay, well, that's experience, but I, you know, I need evidence. Well, I give two scientific arguments and then one that's more, maybe a little more philosophical. But uh, the first thing I talk about in the chapter is the existence of the universe. And I'm telling you, this has always been a good argument, but in the last 20, 30 years, science has reinforced this one in a huge way. And the basic argument is this. First of all, whatever begins to exist has a cause. In other words, things don't pop into existence on their own. So whatever has a beginning has a cause. Second part of the argument says the universe had a beginning. And the beauty of this, again, is Virtually every scientist now believes in some version of the Big Bang theory that it, you know, at a point, you know, a finite point in time, there was a huge explosion at which everything that we call the universe came out of an infinitesimal point. And scientists believe this, and and I do too. And I think Genesis one one describes it, but. They, they think it's a natural event. I just say it's a, a scientific description of a miracle. And so the universe did have a beginning, but then the third part of the argument is whatever had a beginning has a cause, the universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe had to have a cause outside of it, a cause that is great enough to produce it, smart enough to produce it, powerful enough to produce it, old enough to be there to produce it, and artistic enough to make it as wonderful as it is. Well, I'm telling you, that's the God of the Bible. And that's, you know, science and philosophy point to this, you know, powerful reality that there is a God that is beyond all of this, who created it. One of the other frequent questions that come up is dealing with the issue of the Bible. Now, of course, typically as Christians, we rely on the scripture as the source of which we use for good, solid apologetics, as well we should. To the person who says, but wait a minute, the Bible was written by men, it's wrought with all kinds of contradictions and errors and mistakes, how or why should we trust the Bible? Again, a question that is very intimidating to a lot of Christians right up front, because they've always accepted it. And they're often tempted to just say, well, it says right here in Second Timothy that the Bible is inspired, it's the Word of God, it's you know, profitable for correction and teaching, etc., etc. And I agree with that, I agree with that verse, but that's not how you're going to prove it to your non-Christian friends. They're going to say, that's just circular reasoning, you're just using the book I'm questioning to try to prove it. You can't do that. So, what? what first thing I like to do, Craig, is when someone says, you know, it's so full of contradictions, you can't trust it. I just like to look at them and say, you know, contradictions bother me too, but I'm just curious, what are your top two or three? And I'm telling you, it's usually as silent as what we just experienced. Because most people kind of parrot a cliche that they've heard, and that is that the Bible's full of contradictions, and they haven't even looked into it, they haven't read it for themselves, they have no idea and you ask them what are their top two or three contradictions that bother them the most, they don't even have anything to say. And when that happens, which is the majority of the time, I'd like to then say, well, listen, before you start criticizing and writing off 
the book that has changed the lives of millions or really billions of people. You owe it to yourself to read it for yourself and look at it because you're going to find out it is true and it speaks to your heart. It speaks to your deepest needs. But now some people will say, well, you know, there's contradictions there. Uh, you know, some of the Gospels say that there was an angel at the tomb. And then other Gospels say there were two angels at the tomb. And so you can't have, you know, it's either one or two. That's a contradiction. I can't trust a book that, you know, where the guys can't even count angels. When we run into those kind, and by the way, that's the nature of most of what people call contradictions. And what I point out there, and I, this is what I talk about in the chapter, in the questions Christians hope no one will ask, I explain that the nature of eyewitness testimony is that it's always incomplete. Uh, I live in Colorado. I'm looking out my window. I can very honestly say there is a pine tree out there. But, Craig, if you were sitting there, you may look out and say, what do you mean there's a pine tree? There's about a thousand pine trees out there. Well, we're both right. See, I didn't say there's only one pine tree. I just mentioned one of the pine trees I'm looking at. And so I gave less than full detail. You said there was a thousand, and you're right too, but in reality there's a lot more than a thousand because I live in the middle of the woods. So those are just incomplete levels of information. And so going back to the Bible, one gospel writer mentions an angel. He didn't say there's only one. He just mentioned that there was an angel. Then one of the other writers mentions how many there were. He says there were two. And as one person says, you know, here's a mathematical formula that's helpful. Wherever there's two, there's also one. <laughs> Isn't that good? That's, that's a good perspective. And, you know, the, the other issue here that I think can, can give us all a sense of a sigh of relief, initially you think in a topic like this that it means that we have to get into to deep concentration and study and pull out the thesaurus and the concordances and spend hours on the Internet doing research so that we can memorize all these details and data. But as you heard in those two exemplary uh, questions and answers, that it's really fairly basic. It's not that hard or involved if you know where to look and what to share. A look at the questions Christians hope no one will ask with answers. And as Mark mentions, if you'd like to read the first chapter online, you can do so for free. Go to thequestionswithanswers.com. That's thequestionswithanswers.com. Dot com. And Mark Middleberg, thanks so much for the time. It's a great book and one that's an easy read and yet I believe a very important read for all Christians who want to not just deepen your own understanding and knowledge of the Scripture, but also how to better improve your ability at sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.